Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, coming to you from a pub on the banks of the Thames, and I've just had a a fascinating couple of hours which I can't wait to share with you. I've been mudlarking, which is, if you don't know, it's going down when the tide is low on the banks of the Thames and looking for historic artifacts. And I've had a wonderful time. And joining me to talk more about the whole mudlarking world is probably the, the most famous of the mudlarkers. <laughs> it's uh, Lara Maclem. Lara, thank you for joining us on the show. You're welcome, Max. Nice to be here. I must say it was um, quite an experience. It's been, a, it's, it's been an afternoon of history. We're sitting in quite a historic pub, you know, with a, a cold pint after a, after a day down on the riverbank. And it's just been... An adventure in history. I, I must admit, when we talked about doing this, I was expecting we would wander around for an hour and find one or two bits and pieces. I was just flabbergasted by the amount of things that you can find on the banks of the River Thames. Yeah, I mean, the pub that we're sitting in is on basically on the site where uh, Peeps sat and uh, watched London burn during the Great Fire of London. Um, and down on the foreshore is... Uh, rubbish it's rubbish that dates back 2000 years or more um you know dates back to prehistory and um londoners i'm afraid have been throwing rubbish in to the river for all that time and um uh so yeah so that's what we've been looking at everything from rubble to ceramics to clay pipes it's all down there how long have you been rummaging through the uh the detritus <laughs> on, the, on the banks of the thames i have been grotting around in the mud for over 15 years now so um uh yeah i've got some i've got a few years behind me and uh i've found some pretty good stuff in that time yeah let's begin with how did it end up there i mean people have obviously been chucking stuff in the thames for as long as it's been there how did so much historic stuff <laughs> end up in the river well uh, Basically, it's stuff that people have dropped while they've been living and working and traveling on the river. It's also stuff that's been dug into the foreshore and dumped on the foreshore to build up the foreshore because it's a work, it was a working environment. And, uh, naturally a river is a V shape. And so they've created what's called barge beds. So these flat surfaces next to the river wall where the barges rested at low tide. And to do that, they dump loads of rubbish. It was domestic waste, um, spoil from, from building works. And, um, then they capped it off with a nice layer of soft chalk, uh, that didn't damage the bottom of the barges. And, uh, they packed it all down hard. And a lot of what we find is eroding from, from this, this layer of rubbish. 
uh, over well, since the 1960s and 70s, the, the, the ships stopped coming this far up. Uh, the barges stopped working and uh, nobody's, nobody's been looking after the foreshore. And so when a hole developed or the revetments broke, nobody was repairing them and the river's eating away at it. And there's a lot more river traffic as well. Um, and it's literally eating away and washing out all this stuff. It's also washing in the stuff that uh, has, has been dropped and lost from further into the river. So what we find is literally they're on one tide and gone on the next. Because the Thames is unique I, I would think anywhere in the world because of the fact that it's so tidal, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure the River Seine in Paris has lots of amazing things at the bottom of it, but it's not tidal. You can't get down and, and explore. Absolutely. Um, I know that they uh, drained one of the canals in Amsterdam quite recently and they found over 700,000 objects. And the objects are really similar. There's an incredible book actually they've done on it called Stuff. Did, um, did you say 700,000? 700,000 objects. And they, they mirror what we find in the Thames. Um, so it's all there in other rivers. It's just a case of getting to it. And, and London is unique in that it ha- it's had such intense habitation for so long. And it's got these incredible tides that let you right down onto the foreshore to search it for about five to six hours a day. Well, we did that for an hour, an hour and a half. And the scale of what was there is just, I, I can't quite, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Like we, we, we stopped picking up bits of ancient pottery. We stopped picking up tiles from centuries old houses we stopped picking up animal bones that had been feasted upon and then thrown into the river because there was just too many of them i mean the real skill i think in this whole mudlarking game is 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 choosing what not to keep because especially as an australian anything that's 100 years old is considered pretty historic but we were picking up things that date from centuries ago centuries ago yeah yeah it's true it's um you have to curate carefully what you take away i mean when people first start mudlarking they always come away with bags full of stuff and i say to people do you really need to take that stuff that much you know think about what you would probably only need one or two play pipes or you know roof tiles uh there is so much down there you know and 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 as you do it the longer you do it the more picky you get about what you take home and and i don't want to become that mad woman with boxes and boxes of stuff that can never move you know so i curate my collection really carefully and i only take home the stuff i haven't got or better examples of stuff that i have got the clay pipes you mentioned, that was something that quite, quite extraordinary. The numbers of pipe stems were, was remarkable that we found. We, we could have picked yes. up 100 if we, if we wanted to. Easily, um, but the yeah. pipe bowls were rarer um, but, and quite extraordinary. Um, little connections with what I love is personal history. These are not official artefacts or to do with ships and conquests and mm. government. These are really intimate personal items that, that belong to people centuries ago. Yeah, th- this is what I love about mudlarking. It is quite literally rubbish so it is it, it's the possessions of poor people and ordinary people and the sort of people who never made it into the history books who are completely forgotten by history the only thing that that connects me to them is the rubbish that they've left behind sometimes you'll find something with initials scratched on it clay pipe um, stems you'll sometimes find them with tooth marks in where they've been clamped between someone's teeth and it's the little things like that when you find a, a clay pipe bowl that's still black inside from the last smoke that somebody had from it um, that really, really give you that amazing connection with history. It's like reaching back in time and literally shaking the hands of, of, of someone that lived five, six hundred years ago. We were talking about intimate objects. You found a, what looked like a pilgrim's shoe, a, an old leather shoe, almost complete, hand-stitched, an absolutely wonderful artifact. And it was just, it was at the base of the steps just as we were heading up off the river. And to think that the last person that wore that and discarded it in the river, and it's been there for centuries until we came across it today. 
It's amazing. And the side of the river that we were searching on is the side where all the brothels and the bear baiting and the, the, the theatres were. So that shoe would have, I think it dates from around the time of the Puritans um, who banned all, all that sort of fun. So you can imagine what was going on at the time, you know, and there are those little slash marks in the front that look like somebody's cut the leather to sort of ease their bunion or their sort of arthritic toe. It's those little, little things that really, um, really appeal to me. I should mention at this stage as well that you've got a book that's just come out all about this called Mudlarking, and mm-hmm. uh, I highly recommend that, that people pick it up. And you've um, brought in a selection of, of wonderful things that you found on the river. I mean, compared to what we found today, these things are quite extraordinary. Can you share with us some of these uh, some of these items you've discovered on the banks of the Thames? Yeah, uh, I mean, we've got here a Georgian wig curler, complete Georgian wig curler. So um, Charles II brought back this uh, fashion for these massive curly wigs, and um, and so people had to keep them curled, and they they made they they had these wig curlers made, and they're made out of clay, the same sort of clay as the uh, clay pipes, and they would have steeped them in hot water and curled them into the into the hair. And uh, I've I've read that sometimes they bake them into a pie because they they could steam the curls into into them in under the, underneath the pastry. Um, and it's hard. To, it's I find a lot of um, broken ones, so you don't find very many complete ones. Um, there's a glass eye here. Uh, it, yeah, that's um, particularly disturbing. It is a bit disturbing. It disturbed me when I saw that staring <laughs> back at me from the mud. It was like seeing old Father Thames himself looking back at me. Um, but it's beautiful. It's handmade. It's, it's made of glass. And uh, I've read that they made huge numbers of these after the First World War because so many people got their eyes damaged during the war. Um, and the production of, of these sort of glass eyes went through the roof. I've got a tiny, tiny clay pipe here. This is about as old as they get. This dates from about 1580 when they first started importing tobacco. And um, it was very, very expensive. So the pipe bowl's tiny. And as tobacco got cheaper, so the pipe bowl's got bigger. And like the ones that we found today, they're much, much bigger. They date The ones we found today date from about the mid-1700s. Uh, and tobacco was relatively cheap then. Everybody was smoking. And that's why there's so much of it on the foreshore. They were, they were literally inches thick in Covent Garden and they'd shovel them up and bring them down probably by the cartload and dump them onto the foreshore. And uh, that's why we find so many. Um, th- this is a, a Tudor comb. It's made of boxwood. So it shows you how well the, the mud preserves organic material. That, one, that one's quite extraordinary because it is quite delicate. It's, it's, it's wood and it's very finely made. It is. The, the teeth of that comb are very, very thin. And to think that that... I mean, how old would this be? I think it's Tudor. They made them very similar to that uh, for, for hundreds of years. The Vikings and the Romans, their cones look very similar. But this particular sort of rough, rough-looking ones, they've got exactly the same ones they found on the Mary Rose. So I think it probably dates from the 15 or 1600s. Uh, Extraordinary I, that it survived. It's incredible, isn't as, it? And as it well looks, as it has. It looks just like a modern-day knit comb, doesn't it? You know, they haven't changed. You know, it, it's an object that works. So why change it? It's just now they're made of plastic. Um, obviously, there's some coins here, uh, various hammered coins. There's Elizabeth I, Charles I, and Philip and Mary, which is quite rare because obviously she didn't reign for very long. And um, these are all hammered coins. Is it uh, a coins uh, a rare find on the river? They are. I, I, don't, so I don't use a metal detector. So everything I find is just sitting on the surface. And um, I don't go out looking. Some people go out. They, coins are really important to them. That's what they want to find. Uh, and, and, you know, coins interest me, but they pretty much do what they say on the box, don't they? You know, you know how old it is, where it was minted, what it's made of. I like the, the, the more unusual things, the one-offs. So, um, coins are great and they're not rare. 
once you find them, you get your eye in for them. And um, I found quite a lot of coins. This is a pirate, pirate coined. It's a, a Maravedis that was uh, minted in the late uh, 1600s, this one, uh, in Spain to use in the Caribbean. How it ended up in London is anyone's guess. Um, obviously on a ship, somebody had been sailing around the Caribbean and picked it up and either chucked it away or lost it. Um, I think the fascinating thing about coins from a historic perspective as well is they're not rubbish. Coins are not being thrown out of, people are not throwing coins away. So they've either dropped them and they've ended up in the water or someone's fallen into the river after a drunken night or fallen off a ship or dropped their purse overboard. So I, I, I think the stories of how coins end up uh, thrown away it must be quite fascinating must be quite fascinating I mean the, the, in the 1800s there, it's said that they they, they flicked um, pennies and halfpennies into, into the Thames to pay for a fair wind before they set sail so okay. you do find a lot of very worn Georgian pennies and half pennies and a lot of um, Roman coins as well because they would uh, throw money in, into the river as an offering to the gods um, as they passed over the bridge uh, so, you know, they did throw coins in, but mostly I think they were probably lost. And you wonder, did somebody, did this fall out of a dead person's pocket? Who knows? Who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's, what's this small green item? That is a, a little medieval figure that would have been on the, uh, decoration on, around a jug, um, or. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Or a chafing dish or a bowl. And um, I found a couple of these now in the same spot. So... I'm not quite sure whether they're coming from the same spot, but um, I like that. I like his little anything with a face is always nice to find. It's very cute. Yeah. It's very delicate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We we were talking about this as we walked along the river. Just the craftsmanship that went into all of these things we we're finding were handmade, yes. obviously. Yeah. And just the craftsmanship. Those little pins, handmade little little were they dressmakers' pins or hat pins or. Those are well. People pin themselves. People were pinned into their clothes. Okay. Um, buttons were expensive. Obviously, they didn't have poppers and zippers and things like that. And people were pinned and laced into their clothes. And you would buy your pins. The, the phrase pen, "pin money" comes from the amount of money that was given to women to buy the pins for the household um, by their husbands or their fathers. And um, but the pinning industry was huge in this country, especially around the time of Henry VIII. And uh, we couldn't even keep up. Uh, the English pin, pin industry couldn't even keep up with demand. So we were importing them from France as well. And each pin is made by hand, often by families. And they draw the wire to gauge and, and wrap around and solder the, the head and then sharpen them all and polish each one by hand. And um, I just love them. I love them. You find lots of them because they must have just shed them as they walked. It took hundreds and hundreds of pins to make those elaborate ruffs that the Tudors wore, for example. And they even pinned babies into swaddling. 
and uh, bodies into shrouds. So pins were used for everything, and they're everywhere. And I just love the fact that each one's handmade. I love the fact that the bent ones were perhaps somebody trying to push it into some cloth that was too thick, and, and it bent, and they threw it away. And um, I love pins. I love pins. They are they're, they're, they're one of they're my so, favorite. It's finds. extraordinary. They're so delicate, and yet we found several of them today. Mm. And yeah. um, I mean, it's an overused phrase, but if these things could talk, if these items could tell us their stories, it's just Absolutely. extraordinary. Even yeah. the even the trying to work it out, the speculation, yes, is a is a delightful pastime when you yeah. find. It's the same when I walk a battlefield and find uh, a personal object or something to do with the fighting. Mm. This is the same experience times a hundred, though. That yeah. these wonderful items. And just holding it in your hand and, and, and wondering that what the last person to hold it in their hand had gone through at the moment that they lost it. It's yeah. incredible. And, well, and like, like you said, it's that, it's that moment, it's that connection that you make the moment you pick it up, knowing that you're the first person in all those years to touch it since the last person who lost it or dropped it. Um, and, and it's just, it's priceless. It's, it's hard to describe and it's just, just the most incredible feeling. If you're a history person, then it is just, the ultimate feeling. I did it for an hour and was absolutely hooked, so I'm sure uh, this won't be the, the, the last <laughs> time that you'll find me ferreting around on the yeah. banks of the Thames. But, um, but what else do you have in this extraordinary collection? Um, I've got some Roman game counters. Um, the big one there has got uh, the tooth marks of a rat all the way around it, so it's been nibbled by a Roman rat, which I love. <laughs> um, That's brilliant. So I've got quite a collection of those now, almost enough to play a game, I think. Um, and they all come from the same spot as well. And uh, that's Roman as well. That's a Roman intaglio with the figure of Bonus Aventus, good outcome, which was... uh, So what is this that I'm looking at? It comes from a ring. Okay. So it's the stone from a ring. And um, that was really tricky to spot. I mean, usually we walked along. We walked quite a long way today and we kept walking. Usually I'll kneel down and I'll, I'll just scrutinize a very small patch of the foreshore looking for the tiny, tiny objects. That's what... That's what I like to collect is the small things. Uh, so the fact that I've taken home a great big shoe today is, is unusual <laughs> for me. I don't usually take them home. Uh, but it's the small things. like These are Roman hairpins, broken, but oh, um, more Roman stuff there. Um, this is a silver posy ring. So this dates from the 16th century. And it's got around the inside, it's got I live in hope um, engraved inside. So that that was... One of the objects that I found too personal to wear, I, I wear some things. I've got a Tudor button around my neck at the moment. But the moment I put that on, it felt too strange to wear. Um, it's very big as well. I think it's a man's ring. Um, but it just creeped me out a little bit. And I don't get creeped out, but um, it just felt far too personal to wear. Well, you can understand that the person that wore this was perhaps going through a Bad time. Bad time illness or yes. they lost someone close to them. Yes, possibly. Remarkable. Or they'd and just been want- dumped. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, that may be the case as well. Yeah. You wonder if they, uh, under what circumstances, they lost that ring. Did they? Yeah. Did they throw it in a rage into the river, or did they throw themselves into the river? Did when they they throw themselves Who, knows? Who yeah. knows? Yeah, but you know, we still find wedding mudlarks still find wedding rings, modern ones under under bridges. People are still throwing wedding rings and engagement rings into the river. Uh, love letters, torn up photographs. It seems to be the place that people come to sort of ease their burdens and to. Uh, sort of get rid of the things out, out of their lives that they don't want in their lives anymore. Extraordinary. Um, so I found lots of very personal things in the river, which is, it's, uh, it's always been happening. And it's that, it's, that, it's that connection with everyday history that makes you realize that things haven't changed. People haven't changed. Circumstances might have changed, but the, the human condition is the same. Um, and it always will be. We're, we're, we'll be the same. Whatever's going on around us, uh, we're all, all the same.
what's the item that's affected you the most, that had the most emotional impact on you, that really spoke to you the most, that you found on the river? Um, I found a human skull um, about three months ago, and I've never found a complete skull. I found human bones before, but not a complete skull. And holding that and looking into the face of someone who probably died about 200 years ago, I found it out on the estuary, close to where they had the prison hulks, um, and that's where they held people before they were transported. And they also held the Napoleonic prisoners. And uh, when they died, these ships were horrific places, rife with disease. And when they died, they just rode them out to the nearest patch of land. It was usually quite deserted marshland and buried them in a shallow grave. And with um, the, the water levels are rising, erosion's increasing, and all these graves are starting to erode out into the river. And so I found one of these poor souls and holding them and looking actually into the face of someone who'd lived all those years ago um, was really quite emotional, really quite. I've never really felt anything like that before. I'm not surprised, especially considering the, the high likelihood of the terrible conditions under which they died. You know, it's, it's, we talk about connections with history, but that, that's a very somber yes. connection with a, a, an awful chapter of history. And yes. these are the people that were bound for Australia, many of them, that would have ended up convicts in Australia. So there's always this... Um, I think there's always that fascinating connection with yes. uh, with with what might have been with yes. these people had they not suffered and died in these circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wonder would they have survived the journey? Would they have survived the hard labour? You know, but uh, so yeah, that was a, that was a strange experience. So I think those kind of connections I found quite unsettling. Actually, um, probably is the best way to put it. Um, and I found some very personal notes inside bottles. That people is incredible how many people write down uh, their their pain, put them in a bottle and throw throw it into the river. Um, like I say, the river seems to be a place where people go to uh, unburden themselves of all sorts of things. And it's been happening for a long time, apparently, it and it will no doubt continue well into the future. Yes. What's yes. the What's the item if you could uh, if you could wave your magic wand and find anything? What, what would be the thing you would love to pick up? On the riverbank. Um, it's a medieval pilgrim badge, and I haven't found one yet. I found pieces of them, and I've been standing next to someone who's found one, which is really <laughs> frustrating. Um, but I've never actually found my own complete one yet. And uh, they were, uh, in medieval times, people went on these incredible pilgrimages, and when they got there, they'd buy these pewter, it was basically tourist tat, uh, but it were very cheap pewter badges. Uh, that were imbued with the with the with the, uh, the magic of the shrine, and it also proved that they were devoted people who'd made this this journey, and they'd wear them on their their hats and their bags and their cloaks. And when they got back to London, often they, their pilgrimages started from London. When they got back to London, they'd throw them into the river as a thanks for a safe return. And there've been more pilgrim badges found in the Thames, I think, than anywhere else. The Museum of London's got an incredible collection. Um, and I've never found one, and I really want to find a complete one. Why do you think it's important that we do this? I mean, I know that people do it simply because they enjoy connecting with the history, but is there a larger purpose to it? Is there something in our humanity that links us with this history? Why is it important that we go down and, and discover these items from the past? With regards to the Thames, it really is a case of um, here today, gone tomorrow, because when the tide comes back in, it, it wipes the slate clean. It turns another page in the history book, what's lying there is probably going to be gone on the next tide and there'll be something new there. So if we don't go down, we're missing so much. There's so much history washing away. 
Um, in terms of connecting with the past, I think it's it's just important to connect with the ordinary side of history. I hated history at school because I, I didn't enjoy learning dates and battles and kings and queens. I couldn't connect with that. It had it, it was meaningless to me pretty much. I couldn't, it just had, 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 had no resonance really with me. So coming down and actually actually being able to pick up a glass eye that somebody actually wore is quite incredible. Um, so I think that's the, that's the important, that, that to me is, is why it's important. It's, it's rescuing the ordinary things that don't end up in museums. It's a really wonderful thing that you do. I really, as I said, I th- I'm sure I'll be doing it again next time in London. It was really quite fascinating. And if anyone's interested in this topic, which I'm sure many of our listeners will be, your book is out now, Mudlarking, uh, is out now. Um, so certainly pick it up because it's, uh, I've, I've read it. It's a wonderful account of, of this sometimes crazy pastime that you're involved in. Thank you. I should add that you do need a permit to Mudlark, um, from the Port of London Authority. Um, they're, they're not expensive. Anyone can apply for one, but if you are going to go, um, mudlarking, you do need a permit. And please, if you find anything of historic importance, it's really important to, um, to have it recorded. Um, by the Museum of London, by the Fines Liaison Officers who work for the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Um, and it's really important to keep a, keep a track of what's being found down there. Wonderful. Very well said. And Lara, thank you so much for the opportunity for me to join you. It was, it was wonderful. And for joining us today to, uh, to talk all about it. Thank you very much. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.